Well, good morning, Cooks Hill. Congratulations or thank you or something for being here in church on one of the most beautiful days we've had in weeks. You could be a lot of other places, so thank you for being here today. It's my privilege and honor. We're getting a little, little feedback here. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate our sound guys, right? <laughs> they have a hard job. Well, a little over two years ago now, my husband and I moved back into a house that we've owned since 1984, the house where we raised our kids. Prior to that time, we had um, relocated to Longview uh, because of my husband's job, and we were down there for about five years, and then we lived in our RV for three years, and uh, during that time, our house was rented out. So truthfully, we had good renters. They didn't really call us very often, and we would go once a year or so and walk through the house, make sure things were good, right? But it was kind of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind sort of proposition. You know how that goes? So when we decided to move back to the area and move back into our house, we embarked on a major renovation. And since we knew the house was going to be all torn up anyway, my husband thought it would be a good idea to hire a home inspection guy to come and just really look over the house. Now, we knew there were some issues. We knew that the roof was 20 years old plus, maybe, and needed to be replaced. And we had an old deck that had been on the house basically since the house was built. And uh, it also needed to be replaced. So we knew some big issues. But I think we were both a little surprised when this guy shows up and he puts on a, like a hazmat suit and he went under the house and he went on top of the house and he went in the attic and he looked at all the plumbing and the wiring and he was there for almost three hours. And then he handed us a binder full of issues, not one or two issues, right? But a binder full of issues. Today we're going to talk about a part of prayer that I think most of us sort of like to just sort of skim over. We just gloss over. You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we get to that part about forgive us our debts, and we get a little kind of confused. It's like, is it debts or trespasses, or is it trespasses or debts? And by the time it's over, we haven't really done anything about it. It's kind of like our house. If we don't look too close, right, we can think, we're doing okay, right? And I think we're pretty good at praising God. There's something about us, even as Emily talked about last week, when we're in difficult circumstances, that defiant kind of praise, when we're in trouble or when we're feeling good, we want to draw close to God. We're pretty good at that. And we're really good at making our requests known. Wouldn't you say that the bulk of our prayers are our requests. We're praying for people who are sick. We're praying for protection and provision for our family and for our kids and our grandkids. And maybe it's just me, but I'm not sure we're so good at the confession part. In the New Testament, to confess simply means to agree with or say the same thing as. Romans 10.9 says, for instance, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We're agreeing, we're confessing our need of a Savior. The part of confession we don't like so much 
is when we have to agree with God about some other things in our lives. For instance, Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. I don't know about you, but that's a part of prayer that I'm not as comfortable with, that I don't engage in as often. Confession then really has two parts. Searching, that's God's part, and naming, that's our part. So I think, I think we'd all agree that the world's pretty much a mess, right? It's not hard to look out there and see how messed up people are. That mess has a name, and it's kind of gone out of fashion in recent years, but the word for that is sin. If you've been around the church for a while, you've heard that all have sinned, and that little word all means all, right? I've sinned, you've sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I find this definition of sin helpful from uh, Tyler Staten in the book Praying Like Monks. He says sin can simply be defined as good desire channeled through the wrong means. Or sin is shorthand for any attempt to meet our deep needs by our own resources. So it's, it's no secret that the world's a mess. And sin has broken every part of creation from our relationships to even the way that we care for the earth. But it's a little harder to look inside and look at the mess in our own lives. And that mess started at the very beginning. Pastor Emily talked a little about this last week. God created this beautiful, sinless, perfect world with lights and plants and trees and all kinds of amazing creatures. And then, as the crown of his creation, he created human beings in his likeness and image. And then he gave them a job of caring for and partnering with him and caring for this creation. And the, but the best part was that God was right there with them, walking with them, talking with them, having a relationship with them every day, Man, that sounds perfect to me. Doesn't it sound perfect to you? So what in the world happened? Part of the issue that we have as human beings is that when we pick up our Bibles and we read, we tend to read it kind of flat. It's just words on a page. You know, the Bible is broken up into sentences and verses and chapters and books. And in our linear time confined way of thinking. We can look at a chapter like Genesis chapter 2 or 3, for instance, and say, mm, short chapter, short time, right? But we really have no idea how long Adam and Eve got to walk and talk with God in the garden, how well they knew him. However long it was, I think that they did know him. So how in the world did things go so wrong? The story goes sideways when Satan disguised as a serpent, asks a question. Really, that's all he did. The Bible story tells us that it wasn't some big compelling speech he gave or an argument. Now, maybe we don't know because it isn't written. Maybe he was planting little seeds all along and this just was the ultimate question. But it just began with a question, and that question was, did God really say? And that translates really to, can you really trust this guy? I mean, 
Maybe he's holding out on you. They've planted that seed of doubt in their minds about the goodness of God, and they believed it. That seed took root. So that was it. It wasn't the fruit. It was the doubt. It was the question. Satan's lie was so convincing that Adam and Eve believed that by eating that fruit that God had specifically told them not to eat, that they could have a full, abundant, happy life apart from God on their own. What happened next in the story is repeated itself over and over and over and over again throughout human history. Adam and Eve's sin brought shame. And what does shame do? It makes us hide. So Adam and Eve hid from each other. What had been this beautiful, natural relationship all of a sudden was like, ooh, you're different than me. I need to hide. And then that translated into, uh-oh, God's going to be really mad at us when he finds out what we did. We better hide. Sin began with a question. But God's response also began with a question. I think Genesis 3, 8, and 9 are some of the most heartbreaking verses in the Bible. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Now, depending on your view of God, and A.W. Tozer says what you think about God is the most important thing about you, <laughs> you might hear that voice one of two ways. You might hear that question differently. If you see God as a big meanie in the sky waiting to put the hammer down, right, the minute you mess up, or maybe you had an angry or abusive parent, you might hear an angry, accusatory voice. You might hear him say, where are you? You better get out here before I count to three. But if you hear a loving God, I think you'll hear the sorrow in his voice. Where are you? Adam, Eve, where are you? What if that question was less an accusation and more of an invitation to come out of hiding and be restored. So yes, we have to start with a correct view of God. He is holy. He is righteous. He can't tolerate sin, but he's also good and loving and kind. Romans 2.4 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Well, just like those first humans, when we sin, our first and most basic instinct is to hide. We hide a couple of different ways, maybe. We hide by making excuses. That's what Adam did. That woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have eaten it, but she gave it to me. If you have raised kids or been around kids much, you hear a version of this all the time. It's like, 
did you hit your brother? Yeah, but he hit me first, right? Cover, shame, we hide. We also hide by our good works. Hey, nobody's perfect, right? And look at all the good things I do. It's kind of like, instead of grace, we really believe in karma. If I do enough good things, it outweighs the bad things that I do. So we have a diagnosis, if you will. We have a sin problem. What do we do? What do you, how do you get up when you know you've messed up? I think we're reluctant to enter into confession because we really don't want people, we don't even want God as if we could fool him to know who we really are. We're never the people we want to be or claim to be, so we hide. Nobody likes to admit they've messed up. Do you like to admit you've messed up? I don't. Maybe that's why our society today leans toward uh, everybody kind of has their own truth, right? You do you. Hmm. Thing is, we can't even live up to our own standard of goodness. Confession is the only way to receive and be healed by God's grace. God's presence is what we need. So what if instead of hiding from God, we choose or practice hiding in God? Now, some of us have been following Jesus a long time. And we might tend to think that we don't have to confess as often because we don't sin as often because we're so holy now. (laughs) I don't know how that's working for you, but that certainly isn't my story. Pastor Tim Keller says the truth is that as we mature in Christ, we actually confess more because we're quicker to recognize our sin and quicker to run to Jesus for healing and wholeness. King David, the one the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, was a notorious sinner. He was an adulterer and a murderer. Now, if you're listing sins, which I know we're not supposed to do, but we do in our minds, right? Adultery and murder, they're pretty much right at the top. So what made David a notorious sinner, a man after God's own heart? I think it was confession. I think it was that he kept a clean slate between him and God. If you read his story in 2 Samuel, or you read the Psalms for any length of time, You'll see it every place. David refused to hide. He found his hiding place in God. Listen to Psalm 32. These are David's words. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit, no hiding, no shame. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That's a picture of shame. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them, for you are my hiding place. 
You protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God, but God didn't hide from them. It says that God got right in their mess. He took one of his own beloved creations and shed its blood and took its skins and placed on Adam and Eve a covering. God's not aloof or distant from us in our sin. He draws near. And even though Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, God didn't go sit in the garden in a recliner and say, well, you made your bed, now you better lie in it. He went with them. And the rest of the story, the rest of the history, is God continuing to pursue and woo and draw his people back to him, even though they sinned and they stumbled and they wandered again and again and again. But then when the time was right, God became flesh and blood like us in the man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus became the ultimate covering for our sin our ultimate hiding place. Not a place of shame or guilt, but a covering of healing and forgiveness and restoration. The Apostle Paul even said it this way, your lives are hidden with Christ in God. That's the safest place to hide. Our instinct is to think that God's closest to us when things are going well. You know, we're cruising along. But the writer of Hebrews says it's actually the opposite. Jesus is nearest to us in our weaknesses, not in our strength. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. That word empathize literally translates to co-sufferer. Again, from Tyler Staten's book, he says, that's how Jesus deals with our sin. He suffers with us. Suffers the consequences of our thoughts, actions, and disordered desires. Suffers the subtle agony of hiding and pretending and presenting a preferred self that traps us in perpetual insecurity suffers the estrangement from God. We willfully choose by managing a sin pattern we've grown tired of confessing rather than bringing it into the light of his inexhaustible love. So what does prayer of confession look like? How do we do it? Where do we start? I think there are four components, four elements to confession that we need to consider. The first one is a humble and contrite heart. David said, the sacrifice you desire, Lord, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. We have to humble ourselves and confess to God, agree with God about our sin. And then we acknowledge that that sin is against God. Psalm 51 again says, against you and you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. Yes, our sin breaks other relationships too, doesn't it? But ultimately, originally, the root of our sin is against God. We have to acknowledge that. And then we affirm God's character. 
Psalm 69, 16 says, Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. And in your great mercy, turn to me. God is good. And he loves us so much. We affirm that. We agree with that. We confess that. And then finally, we receive the assurance of our forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I want to end our time together today in a corporate prayer of confession. I'm going to ask you to stand in a few minutes and read with me a prayer of confession. But before we do that, I'd like for you to take just a few moments in stillness and invite the Holy Spirit to be your house inspector, <laughs> to take a flashlight in the dark places, to find the mice in the attic and the carpenter ants in the foundation, to do a deep examination of our hearts. Would you just close your eyes for just a moment, just a moment of silence as we just let the Holy Spirit examine our hearts. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Now, if it's appropriate, you may even want to find a mature, trusted fellow believer to confess your sins to because James tells us, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so you may be healed. But first of all, and every day, I want to encourage you to do that prayer of examination. Holy Spirit, search me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Would you stand and let's read together this prayer of confession. We're not going to rush through it. We're going to let the Holy Spirit continue to speak and do work in each of our hearts. In my heart, preachers preaching to herself today. Would you join me? Dear Father, we come before you as your children to give you the honor and praise you so richly deserve. You are our one and only true God, the generous giver of our life and sustainer of our souls. We are grateful for your grace, for how you love us, and for how you have called us to be your ambassadors to this world. In response to your great mercy, we confess how we have sinned and fallen short of the people you created us to be. We've acted in selfish ways. We've hurt one another. And we've functioned as if the universe revolves around us. Merciful God, we confess we have sinned against you in our thoughts, words, and actions. Our words have not reflected your grace, goodness, and mercy. Our deeds have often revealed our pride, 
self-centeredness, and apathy. We've strayed from our worship of you and gone our own way. We are truly sorry. Please forgive us, Lord, and cause us to truly repent and to mercifully receive your love. Forgive us, O Lord. Free us from this bondage to sin and empower us to serve you to your name's glory. We pray this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship our God together, shall we?